Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. The government offers aid and help from military personnel in the aftermath of the deadly explosion in Beirut. We've also got a Royal Navy survey ship in the area which can be deployed to help assess the damage to the port. What impact is COVID-19 having on food security and conflict across the world? The first people on the ground who are the victims are the people living where the conflict is but we are also blackmailed by conflict because we cannot get in there. We have a special report on training with the UK Gurkha Company and we hear the story of one man who fought in the Battle of Balaclava and how it's been highlighted with the sale of his medals at auction. A man with such a part to play at Balaclava and that's why you see such interest amongst collectors and institutions for these medals. Britain has promised aid and help from military personnel to Lebanon in the aftermath of the massive explosion in Beirut. What? What? I heard like two big explosions. I felt the building is going down. I was trying to hide. Everyone dropped to the ground and I remember opening my eyes and uh, looking at the ground and just seeing a dust and bunch of rubble just floating in the mall that we were in. Suddenly I lost my hearing. Apparently I was too close. So I lost my hearing for a few seconds. I knew something was wrong. And then suddenly the, sh the glass just shattered all over the car. There is no future anymore in Lebanon. If there is a boat now, we will take the boat and leave Lebanon. Khalas. Lebanon, you cannot stay here. Well, the UK's Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has made this commitment. We are ready and now poised to deliver uh, medical experts, humanitarian aid, £5 million, uh, search and rescue experts. Uh, we've also got a Royal Navy survey ship in the area which can be deployed to help assess the damage to the port. HMS Enterprise is to be sent to support the reopening of that port. Well, with us, Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Royal United Services, Institute, the Defence and Security Think Tank, and also, as always, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Karen, first of all, uh, I mean, this comes at a time when there's been absolute political and economic turmoil in Lebanon. Uh, this can only add to the economic and security problems there, can't it? I suppose, on the other hand, you could say this could be the straw that breaks the camel's back and it might uh, get the protesters out and it might force some sort of change such an extraordinary mess up by the government just to let this depot be in really that dense part of Beirut. Uh, and so many people have been killed, so much of the city's been destroyed that this really could push things over the edge, potentially in a positive direction or in a negative direction. Christopher, I mean, the armed forces have a lot of experience helping after a catastrophe like this, don't they? Well, they do. What the enterprise do? Well, I suppose if, if nothing else, it can give a, a, a secondary report on where we've got to. The other part of it is very, very important. And that is that the, the United Kingdom is quite stretched at the moment in, in, in who it does help and what it can help in and the politics of helping in, especially in that area. I mean, it's just made a bigger commitment to help in, in the Yemen. You have a limited amount of resources. I think it's not simply of saying, OK, we'll, we'll send the enterprise and we'll, we'll send £5 million worth of food. Christopher Karen, both stay with us. 
A United Nations report on the impact of COVID-19 around the world suggests people in around 25 countries are facing devastating hunger in the coming months. The report by the United Nations World Food Programme suggests the greatest concentration of need is in Africa, but countries in Latin America and the Caribbean and Middle East and Asia, including middle-income countries, are also being ravaged by crippling levels of food insecurity. Well, last year, the UK contributed around £530 million to the World Food Programme. This year, it gave £15 million towards their COVID-19 response. Peter Smurden works in East Africa for the World Food Programme and told me more about the impact of the virus. What it's telling us is that, obviously, as everyone knows, this is an unprecedented global socioeconomic catastrophe. And as usual... It is the most vulnerable, especially children, women and the elderly, who are most affected, especially in Africa, uh, but also in other countries. And it is really testing the limits of their endurance. And um, they are mainly concentrated, the people we are most concerned about in urban areas, which is different from what the World Food Programme usually delivers food to, which are people who uh, are affected by conflict, Um, or climate change in rural areas. So we're having to serve uh, new people in urban slums uh, across the world, and we're needing to give them cash to try and keep markets open uh, so the economy can recover and and keep food prices in an affordable range so people can actually buy enough to survive. Is it possible to estimate the numbers of people at risk here? Yes. I mean, basically, globally... WFP estimates that the number of acutely food insecure people could increase by 80% this year, from 149 million pre-COVID to 270 million before the end of this year. And in East Africa, we think that uh, the number of acutely food insecure people could increase by 73% by the end of this year, from 24 million pre-COVID to 41.5 million before the end of the year. So, I mean, it's, a, it's got a big impact. It varies throughout the world, um, but it has a very global impact and the situation is only going to get worse before it gets better. Where you are in East Africa, I mean, COVID has simply been another problem added on top of many problems for many people. What is the link there between food insecurity and conflict in this region? The problem with conflict in this region and other regions is that when there is conflict, and there is, for instance, in Yemen, in South Sudan, there is very little we can do. We are the first people on the ground who are the victims are the people living where the conflict is, but we are also blackmailed by conflict because we cannot get in there. So it's a question of access. Even if we can bring in food or assistance, we can't bring it in during conflict. And that's what we're seeing in Jonglei in East South Sudan. That's what we're seeing in many parts of Yemen, uh, both of which are huge emergencies and both have pre-famine conditions. That means that if there is any further pressure on those countries in the coming months, they could fall into famine. And in famine, as we've seen in Somalia in the past and other places, what happens is before the famine is declared, Uh, the greatest number of people are already dead. So it's a a huge escalation of mortality and um, it's very difficult to stop once it started. 
it takes quite a lot of months to get it under control. And it, I mean, it, it, it's very clear, you've laid it out there, how conflict makes food insecurity worse. Does also that food insecurity feed into creating conflict? It can in, in some cases, particularly when conflict is between, say, pastoralists, uh, nomadic herders and farmers, uh, as happens in South Sudan um, and is happening in Jongli as we speak. It can impact when there, is, there are limited resources and populations are on the move, uh, sometimes with their livestock, that can create conflict. And we also see it from time to time in countries that are even usually at peace. In Kenya, in the north, we see that kind of conflict erupting. Um, so there is that added danger, but at the moment, COVID is stopping people from moving around, and we don't see that happening at the moment, though as conditions worsen because of COVID, uh, we could start to see that kind of problem. We're also talking to you in the week where we have seen this devastating explosion in Lebanon. It is in a port where food supplies come in. Uh, again, it's a, a second order effect of what is already a tragedy. But what do you think the impact of, of that explosion in that port could be for, for foods in Lebanon? Yeah, the impact could be great for food in Lebanon in as much as a ship was unloading wheat at the wheat silos in East Beirut, very close to where, where the explosion took place. Uh, the silos have been destroyed. The government says that that wheat cannot be eaten because obviously it's been damaged by the fire and the smoke. So what we need to see is whether we can get new food in there. Currently, the World Food Programme uh, already feeds almost a million people in Lebanon uh, before the explosion. So we do have the capability to do it, but we haven't yet received a request from the government. So we're just looking at the situation on the ground and working on contingency plans uh, if our assistance is needed. Peter Smurden from the World Food Programme, talking to us from Nairobi. Uh, Karen, we heard there about the impact of virus on food security. I mean, is this part of a pattern of insecurities and instabilities being caused by the pandemic? In some ways, you could say, you know, parts of Africa may be, you know, really negatively impacted and we don't know what's actually happening because the data is bad and they're not keeping track. Other people might say, well, there is a younger population in a lot of Africa, and so they may have fewer deaths there, and they don't have as many elderly people in many of these countries. Um, so it's at the moment, it's just really hard to know how badly impacted it's going to be. Look, the WFP does a great job by giving cash as opposed to just giving food aid, because you do want to stimulate the local economy. And so they're very creative and they're much more innovative than they have been in the past. But it, it's not necessarily helping resolve this over the long term and, and helping uh, local actors you know, with their own food sources and their own food supplies. And a lot of that has to do with climate change. Everything is connected in an incredibly complex way. Christopher, I mean, food security, that, that comes back, I guess, to, to, to some of the most basics of human expectations. How much pressure does this put on international organisations, particularly those headquartered in the West, like the United Nations, but many others, to actually deal with this crisis and be seen to respond? Well, the first thing that happens or has to happen is that some of the bigger organisations have to be able to target properly where it's possible to do something and do something in a reasonable time. It's very difficult to see any resolution 
uh, in, in the near future. Those countries are not maybe particularly well run at the time. And then you take something like uh, Lebanon, where 10 months ago, there were near revolutions in, in or certainly uh, demonstrations in, 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 in Lebanon saying this, we're a broken state, the, the system is corrupt, etc. They see something like this, who is to blame? Now that's the instinct. You always want to find out who is to blame, who is to re be responsible. Karen, COVID-19 is affecting globally and you have these international organisations that promise to deliver for the world. Uh, this is a real challenge for them. How do you think they're coping? I don't think they're doing a very good job. I don't think we've seen global leadership at all through this crisis, whether, you know, pushed by the United States or by the UN. I don't think there's even been a Security Council meeting on the response. So, uh, you know, individual agencies and organizations like the WHO or WFP have been trying, but obviously they're being undermined at every level as well. I mean, we've seen what Trump has tried to do with the WHO and the disagreements between China and, and the US. So I think we're in a bit of a multilateral crisis as well. We shouldn't be in the situation we are where it's every country figuring it out on their own. We should be collaborating because the pandemic is not just a health, a public health crisis. It's obviously an education crisis and an economic crisis, and it has so many other aspects to it. And we really should be building coalitions to, to coordinate in so many ways, that, and, and we're just simply not doing it. The whole thing has been a, a real disaster, and, and we've seen how woefully unprepared we are to deal with a crisis of this type. Karen, Christopher, thank you. Do both stay with us. Let's now look back exactly 75 years ago today. America became the only country in the world to detonate an atomic bomb. It exploded its device over Hiroshima, killing around 140,000 people. At 2.45 in the morning, August 6, 1945, Colonel Tibbetts takes the Enola Gay down the runway into the air, beginning the six and one half hour flight to Japan. A short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. I survived because I was late, so I feel lucky because I was not here at the time. But when I think of those who were killed because they were diligent and on time, I'm just so sorry for them. I feel bad for them. Christopher, very much an American action, but how much did Britain contribute to the development of the bomb that enabled that action? The British have been thinking in terms that there's got to be a big weapon. There was something else going on in Europe, you know. A lot of young scientists were frightened of staying in Germany, and they were looking for places to go. The United Kingdom had those places. Churchill wanted weapons. He wasn't interested in, for example, nuclear technology so that you could power all the lights in the United Kingdom. And he thought he had a deal, but he was never going to have a good deal. And so when 19 British scientists went off to Los Alamos to work there, British scientists went into second-rate jobs or second-line jobs so they wouldn't have as much information. But Churchill had authorised the giving away of British uranium, which is what the Americans needed more than anything else. Uh, Churchill had written a five-point uh, plan, which he said, you've got to agree this. If we give you help in the construction of a bomb, you mustn't use it against us. And you must give us all the information about it. If you're going to target anybody else, you must ask us first. Well, you know, uh, do these things ever work out that way? I mean, Karen, 75 years on, the world still has nuclear weapons. They have uh, arguably served as 
as a deterrent. But now we've seen President Trump pulling out of the INF Treaty, Russia renegotiating President Trump wants China to take part. Are we seeing the control of nuclear weapons disintegrating? This could go two ways, and it really will depend on who wins the election in the United States in November. Uh, I don't think Trump cares about treaties at all. He likes, he thinks America can do whatever it it wants and still tell everyone else what to do without contributing to any of these multilateral organizations or agreements or whatever. Um, And of course, things don't work that way. China is increasing its nuclear arsenal. It does need to be brought into these negotiations. It'll be incredibly complicated to do that. I think Biden would focus very much on on these agreements and getting getting everyone back to the table. It's hard to know. Russia is very unreliable. And China, of course, is not even interested. So, yes, it's a very precarious time. And we have Iran and North Korea. And, you know, the world's not in a very good place in terms of international security right now. And there is no leadership, as I mentioned earlier. And a lot of that has to do with Trump withdrawing from that role that the U.S. has always played, that sort of traditional leadership role since the end of the Second World War. It makes many people who follow these issues incredibly nervous. Karen, thank you very much for that. Christopher, stay with us. Uh, We will have full coverage of VJ Day commemorations in next week's programme, including interviews with veterans and their families. This is Zitrap. Let's talk more about the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. In Nepal, it has hit Gurkha recruitment. It's caused the cancellation of selection so far this year. Here in the UK... Gurkha Company has, though, been one of the units of the army relatively untouched by the COVID lockdown. Hannah King has this special report. Zero to Mike, over. Dawn at Winnie Hill, Catrick's urban training ground, and through the darkness, over a hundred young Gurkhas creep silently towards the old village. Two-thirds of the way through their training, this is an important part of the course, as WO2 Birendra Kambang explained. The future of the war will be fought in the urban area, not in the in the jungle or in the training area. This kind of building, this kind of the built up area, that the Gurkhas may not have seen before, and it is quite difficult to get used uh, to with the the structure of the building, the inside of the room. One man, come on! Coming in! Coming in! Coming in! I was talking to the uh, wing commander yesterday, and what he was saying is, he's quite happy to take these boys and go to the war. That is all I can say. After just five five months? Yes, they, 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 they learned quite a lot. Uh, one zero alpha, one three, bravo. Uh, first building clean. Gurkha Company has been relatively untouched by coronavirus. They've continued training throughout lockdown, even adopting two British platoons and extra 200 soldiers who were unable to return home when the infantry training centre shut down. Officer commanding Major Rajesh Garung beamed as he told me the recruits were all safe. I'm probably one of the proudest uh, officer commanding in the entire British Army right now, out of 432 Gurkha recruits. Um, I've managed to keep them safe and none have been infected so far. We had to make uh, some adjustment to how we deliver the training. For example, like first aid, where two individuals have to come close together. We use dummies, for example, instead of uh, real persons. As officer commanding of Gurkha Company, Major Rajesh also has a duty of care to the 432 families of the young recruits back in Nepal. I knew the boys would be worried, um, so as the parents in Nepal as well. 
uh, hens, uh, I actually gave them a direct order to call the parents in Nepal. Rather than me calling them or writing a letter and giving them assurance, uh, it would be you know, culturally appropriate uh, for the soldiers to call the family in Nepal uh, so that they can hear the voice and be assured. But whilst training here has continued, out in Nepal it's a different story. All applications had to be suspended earlier this year. But British Gurkhas Nepal has a commitment to supply 340 soldiers in 2021, all part of the 32% scaled increase in the Brigade of Gurkhas announced back in 2016. So how are they going to do it? Major Rajesh Karung again. We've got to reach the target by 2026. Therefore, the selection will go on. There is some adjustment because of the current situations, so there will be no regional selections. However, those who have made it to central selections last year, they will be invited back um, for central selection and obviously for final selections as well. Yeah. From mid-August, recruiting staff in Nepal will begin contacting those who were unsuccessful last year to see if they wish to be considered again. On September the 1st, a list of all those to be recalled will be published with further instruction on how and when final selection for 2021 will take place. Many hopefuls from last year anxiously await news. For 17-year-olds desperate to apply for this year's intake, the wait continues. Hannah King reporting. Now, it's nearly six years since the UK's combat operations in Afghanistan came to an end, and we find ourselves at a point where the Defence and Home Secretaries are promising to find a settlement for Afghan interpreters who worked with British forces and who want to come to the UK. But the recent talks between Ben Wallace and Priti Patel have not yet produced any new proposals. There was a scheme established two years ago that has enabled just two interpreters to settle here, despite claims at the time that it would allow 50 into Britain. Well, in a statement, the government has told us that it's committed to ensuring a fair system for the resettlement of Afghan interpreters. It went on to say that we owe a huge debt of gratitude to interpreters who risk their lives working alongside UK forces in Afghanistan. And it says claims are being processed as rapidly as possible. Now, in part of this ongoing discussion, a cross-party group of MPs has written to the government urging action. Jamie Stone is the Liberal Democrat defence spokesperson who coordinated the letter. Talk takes time. The point is we've waited for two years. Gavin Williamson said that he was going to relocate 200 of these people here. So far, only two have been relocated. And as for their families joining them, well, dream on. These guys and these ladies are in danger in Afghanistan because the Taliban will try and exert a terrible revenge. Seven years ago, Paddy Ashdown described it as a, as a debt of honour, and it's true. Our armed forces benefited greatly from these brave people helping us. So we owe it to them to make their lives safe and get them here as soon as possible. A two-year delay is just too bad. It, it's, it's not on. Why is it you think the, the current scheme isn't working for so many who say they do want to settle here? I simply do not know. I mean, I have met Afghans who have relocated here, and they are a benefit to the economy. They work extremely hard. Sometimes maybe things slip off government agendas, governments of all colour. But, you know, as my party's military spokesman, I'm very clear that in the future, we're going to need these people again. The, the world is a dangerous place. We exercise our power by means of soft power. And that means that if we have a, a debt of honour, which we do in this case, we are seen to honour it. Otherwise, in future dangerous situations, 
people will be less inclined to step forward and help us. So you've sent this cross-party letter, you and others. What are you saying to the government should be done? What's, what's your solution? Please, you know, just get, get going on it right now as quickly as possible. Every day, every week, every month they remain in Afghanistan, they are in, in, in danger. And I've been very gratified, actually, by the cross-party uh, support of other MPs, and particularly Julian Lewis, the former chair of the Defence Committee, now chair of the Security Committee, he knows what he's talking about, and he came up to me in the Commons the other day and said, this is a great letter, I'm really happy to support you. I mean, what is your understanding of the conditions that these former interpreters are facing while they remain in Afghanistan? They are in danger. There's no doubt that the Taliban are out there to exert revenge on people they see as traitors to their cause. They know they can get their way as if we are seen to be shilly-shallying and, and dragging our feet about this. Actually, I think that Ben Wallace, who's a, a decent man, I've known him for many years, he will have good motives. And I think if he gets together with Priti Patel, they could sort this out in a very short meeting and get moving on it right away. The Liberal Democrat defence spokesman, Jamie Stone. Now, we finish this week looking at the Battle of Balaclava, one of the most iconic battles in British history, immortalised by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Well, this week, the medals won by a soldier that day. Troop Sergeant Major William Stewart were sold at auction. He took part in the charge of the heavy brigade and survived the Crimean War. Marcus Budgeon from Spink and Son told me how William Stewart's exploits that day were recounted in the memoirs of a fellow soldier, Sergeant Major Henry Franks. I mean, the story of um, William Stewart is, is, a, is an absolute gem. And uh, Franks' story um, really brings you to the centre of the action and tells a tale of how um, Stewart rode on four horses on that day, um, three of which were shot from underneath him and killed. Um, but nonetheless, he, he mounted other horses and continued the fight um, and continued his duty. Uh, just tell us about the medals themselves. What, what medals were they and what did each one mean? Um, so Stuart was awarded four medals. Uh, he had the Crimea medal um, issued by obviously the British um, with clasps for all the actions he served in. That was his, his campaign medal for what he did. Uh, he had the Turkish Crimea medal because we were allied with the Turks during that war. Uh, he had the Army Long Service medal for his, his long and distinguished service in the army. And um, quite special was the French Médaille Militaire. Again, the French were our allies during that war. And um, the, the really lovely thing with uh, the group of medals is it actually comes with the original citation, uh, which state um, exactly what Stuart was up to. Um, so again, it's two different sources which show his, his most special uh, participation in that famous event. And it is that story, I guess, that brings the interest to the to the artefacts. How much did the medal sell for and, and who bought them? So they have uh, been sold to a private collector um, and they I bought a gavel down at uh, £4,500. So they, they bought just over £5,000 with all the buyer's premium uh, included. And uh, yes, you're quite right. I mean, the, the interest of a man who is absolutely confirmed as a charger on that day uh, carries a great premium. Uh, medals to men who served in the Crimean War might bring, you know, a few hundred, uh, up to a thousand, maybe if they're if they're killed in some of the other actions at the Alma or the Sebastopol. But uh, a man um, with such a part to play um, at Balaclava, um, that's why you see such 
interest amongst collectors and institutions for these medals. How does it feel for you as an auctioneer to to sell something like that? I mean, you must sell you know a multiplicity of of things. Is, is something like this particularly special for you? I mean, stories like this, we are we're privileged to be able to tell the stories and. Um, in many cases, the medals uh, is all that ex- all that exists and all that remains of these men. So, it, it's a great pleasure, and each one of them is very close to our hearts. Even though we we may only handle them for you know a few weeks or a month or two while they're while they're with us before they go on to their new homes, um, but we have that responsibility of telling the story and um, you know making sure their names go down. Uh, in history and, and getting them onto the next uh, onto the next generation of, of avid collectors. Marcus Budgeon from Spink. Christopher, what is it about the charge of the, the light and heavy brigades and the Crimean War that generates so much interest? The picture of it, isn't it, really? Like a lot of British history, the poets come to rewrite it in Victorian times, and we believe that version. But the light brigade sort of went in, and the Russians picked them off one by one, no problem at all. This guy was heavy brigade. Anybody who's ever watched the Grand National, can you imagine that sort of 500 times as big, all going for Beecher's Brook at the same time, all getting shot at at the same time? And this guy, his first horse, takes a bullet. And what does he do? He gets off and he sees a horse scrambling around and bucking around and he grabs hold of it and climbs aboard and gets on. And then suddenly there's a bomb under him and his horse goes down again, and he gets another horse. And eventually he's on a fourth horse, and he gets the right the way through to the lines, and they accomplish what they set out to do, and that's destroy the opposition. Christopher, thank you so much. Thanks also to Karen Von Hippel for her time this week, and to all our guests. That's it from me, James Hurst, for now. Don't forget that you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS Sitrep. While you're online, you can subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode in future. That's at bfbs.com slash sitrep. For now, though, thanks for listening and goodbye.